please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 16. I'll read the second part of verse 4 all the way to verse 11. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you see me no longer. And you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I'm pretty sure it was only 14 days ago that there was so much snow here that hardly anybody could get to church. And now this morning it's so warm I had to take my coat off, so I'm grateful for that, um, that physical grace. But let's pray now that God would give us spiritual grace. Lord, we pray that you would feed us now with the food of your word, and we pray that you would nourish us deeply. We pray that you would give us insight into the things that you have said and why it's good news, not only for those early disciples, but also for us. And I pray that we would walk out of this place at peace, knowing that your presence and your power upon us is best for us. And I thank you, Jesus, for what you will do. I thank you for teaching your disciples then, and I thank you for teaching this church now through this word. In your great name we pray, amen. Wouldn't it be a good thing if we could walk with Jesus face-to-face and talk with him day by day? Wouldn't it be an amazing thing if we were able to actually hear what his voice sounds like and see the look in his eyes and feel the, the warmth of his touch in our lives? Wouldn't it be something to walk with Jesus throughout the Elk River area and, and just follow him as he does ministry in our area? Wouldn't you be curious to see, like, where would he go? What would he do day by day? Who would he interact with? What would he say? What would he choose not to say? Who would he rebuke? Who would he save? Who would he heal? Who would he pass by? Wouldn't it truly be an amazing thing to have a physical, visible, and personal relationship with Jesus on this earth? For Christians in our day, I think there are a number of reasons why we might think that it's preferable to have this kind of relationship with Christ on the earth. But for the 11 disciples who were gathered with Jesus in that upper room in Jerusalem that day, it was the only thing that they had ever known of him. About three or four years earlier, each of them had just been going about their lives. They were just working at their jobs, living their lives. And they encountered this man, Jesus, and he spoke to them and he called to them. Almost to every one of them, he called them by name and said, you, I want you to follow me. And these men, one by one, left everything that they had to follow this man because they were persuaded that he was the Messiah of God, that he was the one who had come to fulfill the purposes and the promises of God. They were persuaded that he would become the literal king of the nation of Israel And later, they were persuaded that they would be the core of his administration, if you will. Over the years, they had heard him teach many things. Over the years, they had watched him heal many people. They had watched him display power over nature. 
We hear the story, but they watched Jesus speak to wind and waves, and then the wind and waves obey them. We read the stories, but they saw Jesus multiply bread and fish and feed thousands and thousands of people. They saw his power over great things that people don't have power over. And so my point is that even though they had political aspirations with Jesus, I don't want to overplay that card because they did not only have political thoughts about him. They thought he was the Messiah. For them, there were great political implications, but what I'm trying to get us to understand is they saw him as the man of God sent to fulfill the purposes of God, and in many ways, they were right. But they were also wrong in many of their perceptions of who Jesus was and how he was going to carry out his ministry and how the purposes and promises of God were going to be fulfilled. And so Jesus had to confront this. He had to correct this. He had to challenge them. So he told them that he was going to be leaving them soon and that for the time being they would not be able to follow with him. They were so shocked and so saddened at that time that they didn't even know how to speak out loud. They didn't even know how to articulate what that made them feel. They were in the city of Jerusalem during the feast of the Passover in someone's upper room and they thought the time had come for them to seize power probably the next day. Jesus just days earlier had walked into the city of Jerusalem and hundreds, probably thousands of people lauded him as the fulfillment of Psalm 118 and the coming king of Israel. And beloved, Jesus did not silence their praise. He received it. And for those 11 disciples, that caused them to think the time had come. And their choice to leave everything and follow this man was about to be vindicated. He was about to become the literal king of the physical nation of Israel, and they were about to make up the core of his administration. But just when it seemed that everything had come together, it all fell apart. At least from their perspective, it all fell apart. They could not conceive of what Jesus meant when he said that he would be leaving them. But Jesus knew that this was, in fact, best for them. Not just good for them, but best for them. And so he returned directly to this subject in 16, 4 through 15. Actually, today we'll look at 4 through 11. Lord willing, we'll look at 12 to 15 next week, and we'll carefully consider what Jesus had to say. And I hope that we'll see that it was good news not only for those disciples, but it's good news for us that Jesus does not have a physical, visible, local, personal relationship with, here, with us here in the city of Elk River in the sense that he's walking around our city with us. That's actually good news. And I hope that we'll come to, to see that in the next couple of weeks. So let's look at verse four. Jesus begins in the latter half of the verse. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. So the Lord had been clear from the beginning about the cost of following him. And he had taught his disciples many things. In some ways he taught them broadly along with the crowds. But in other ways, he drew his disciples aside and he taught them many things. But all that he has now taught them, especially in John 15 and 16, but I suppose we could include 13, 14, and 15 as well, all of that Jesus chose to withhold until this time simply because he was with them. And I think what he's saying is that as their Lord and leader, he was taking the lead in these things and it wasn't time for him to teach these things to them. He was taking the lead in the pursuit of God the Father. He was taking the lead in discerning the Father's will on the earth and submitting to the Father's commands on the earth. 
Jesus was taking the lead in loving one another for the glory of God. He was showing them, displaying to them what self-sacrificial love looked like. Jesus was taking the lead in confronting the world and holding out hope to the world. He was taking the lead in receiving the reaction from the world. Some were healed, some were saved, others hated him and tried even to kill him. Jesus did not share these things with them because he was physically among them and he was leading in these things. But now everything was about to change. Jesus was about to leave them and he was about to return to the Father. So he wanted to prepare them for the kind of life that they were gonna live in the world outside of his physical presence, which was brand new for them. Now, no matter how clear Christ was about these things, the disciples simply couldn't hear what he was saying because they were so caught up in their grief. They were so preoccupied with the idea that everything they had thought was about to happen had just fallen apart in front of their eyes. And so deep, in fact, was their grief, so deep was their shock, that none of them really even thought to press Jesus and ask him where in the heck he was going. As Jesus said, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Now, of course, if you're an astute reader of John, you'll remember back in chapter 13, verse 36, Peter did actually ask him, Lord, where are you going? And in chapter 14, verse 5, Thomas implied this when he said, we, we don't even know where you're going, so how can we go where you're going? But in both of those instances, if you look back and consider them carefully, the disciples are not actually asking Jesus about his destination, they're asking him about their destiny. In other words, when they're saying, Lord, where are you going? What they're really saying is, what does this mean for us? What does this imply for us? What's gonna happen to us? They're not really pressing him and seeking to inquire about God's will for his life. And he's pointing that out now. None of you is asking the obvious question. Where am I going and why is that a good thing? And I want to suggest to you that Jesus brought this up not because he felt personal hurt over this. It's not like he's saying, no, you guys, you guys aren't even asking me where I'm going. You don't even care about me. It's not like he feels hurt. What he's trying to do is wake them up. He's trying to pique their curiosity. He's trying to goad them, to question him so that he can reveal some things to them and so that they can see that his departure is actually best for him and also for them. Look at verse seven. Jesus said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage. That Greek word means to be profitable. It is profitable for you that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. As for Jesus, his departure from the earth and from the disciples' presence meant that he would soon complete the work that the Father had sent him to complete. He would finish the work very soon. Now within just 48 hours, less than 48 hours, he would hang on that cross and speak those famed words, it is finished. And he would be buried in the ground and on the third day he would be raised again from the dead and not long after that he would ascend to the right hand of the Father. 
As for Jesus, he was on the precipice of returning to the manifest presence of his Father where he would again enjoy his presence and his fellowship forever and ever and ever. The departure of Jesus from the earth to the right hand of God was incredibly good news. The disciples wanted him to sit on the throne that was in Jerusalem. Jesus was about to go sit on the throne above all thrones, beloved. He was about to be installed as king. But the kingdom was a little bigger and a little higher than the, than the disciples had imagined. And this was incredibly good news, not only for him, but also for them. So as for the disciples, the departure of Jesus from the earth and their presence was to their advantage because it meant that Jesus would fulfill so many Old Testament prophecies and send the helper, the Holy Spirit of truth, to become one with his people and to help them walk in love with the Father and in love with one another, and to help them interface with the world. And not only would the Holy Spirit be with them as though he's outside them and some kind of external partner, but by some great mystery of God, the Holy Spirit of God who hovered over the face of the earth would actually indwell his people and be with his people forever. Here's why the departure of Jesus was good news for them. They were about to gain a measure of fellowship with Almighty God like they had never known and could never imagine, beloved. It's one thing to physically walk beside Jesus. It is another thing, and I would suggest a greater thing, to walk with the Spirit of God indwelling you in the name of Jesus and by the blood of Jesus. And this was soon going to be the inheritance of the disciples. It was to their great advantage. And not only would he be with them, but he would empower them to do everything Jesus was calling them to do in the world. All the instruction, especially from 15.7 right to the end of, the, of chapter 15, all of that, the burden for it was not going to be on their shoulders. The burden for it would be on the Holy Spirit's shoulders and he would come and indwell them and do his ministry in them and do his ministry through them. And having gained this profound union, beloved, having gained power for ministry in the world, they would also come to know the fullness of God's joy. Look real quick at 1511, what Jesus said there. I think his words there in 1511 really apply to everything. He said, I tell you all these things because I want you to know the fullness of my joy. That's what I want. I want you to enter into the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, both in your personal life and with regard to ministry in the world. I want you to know what this is all about. And I'm gonna send you the Holy Spirit while I reside at the right hand of the Father to make that happen. That's good news, beloved. That's a better plan. Now, as for those of us who believed in Jesus later, a year after all of this, or 10 years, or 2,000 years after, the physical absence of Jesus from us is also good news, and it, will also, and it will always be good news until the day that he returns. While it may seem advantageous to us to have a physical, visible relationship with Christ here in the Elk River area, the truth is that it's more advantageous for us to have him seated at the right hand of the Father, because there... He intercedes for us by name and by circumstance and without ceasing in the presence of the Father. There, he guides all of our ministries. There, he sends the Holy Spirit to indwell every person who calls on his name and receives his forgiveness and is reconciled with God. There, Jesus sends power so that we can do his will in the world, so that we will have the, the desire 
and the ability to love the Father and to love each other and to take the gospel to this world, whether they bow before Christ or throw their stones at us. It is best for us, beloved. It's not just good, it's not just better. It is best for us that Jesus Christ went to be with the Father and sent to us his great Holy Spirit. There is legitimacy to the desire to have a face-to-face relationship with Jesus. There are sometimes, in my quiet times, I'm not exaggerating, I have so longed to be able to see Jesus and be with him at that level that I've cried tears. I long to be with him. There's, There's legitimacy to that. That longing is a good thing. And John tells us in 1 John chapter 3 that the day is coming when we are going to see him face to face. And our longing to have that kind of interaction with Jesus will be fulfilled, but at such a greater level that we can't imagine. For now, it is more advantageous for us. It is profitable for us that Jesus is not physically here with us, but that he has sent his Holy Spirit to us so that we can carry out his will in fellowship with him. With this in mind, Jesus now turns in verse eight to the subject of what the helper will do when he comes to the earth. And what really surprises me about this is when he turns to the work of the Spirit, he doesn't talk at all, at at first at least, about the relationship between the Spirit and the disciples. His first word is about the relationship between the Holy Spirit and the world. He wants to help the disciples understand again why this is good news, that they're about to go out into the world and be hated by the world. However, he's going to go to the Father and send them the Holy Spirit. This is great news, and he's going to try now to reveal why that is. Let's read verses 8 through 11 again. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The heart of the ministry, the the Holy Spirit's ministry in the world with regard to the world is the ministry of conviction. So I want to be as clear as I can about the meaning of this word and then hopefully clarify for us the nature of his ministry in the world with regard to the world. So let's just look into this word convict. The word here for convict literally means to reprove someone, to refute them, or even to confute them, and especially regarding sin. It can have a a legal connotation so that when you hear the ministry of conviction, you should think of someone who has been in a trial and has been convicted. They have been tried, they have been found guilty before God. The Holy Spirit will come into the world to convict the world, sort of as a lawyer for God against the world. The word, however, also has a personal connotation, and sometimes in older English translations, they actually uh, uh, translated this word to convince and not to convict, because the idea isn't just that someone would be outwardly convicted, but that inwardly they would be convinced that they had sinned, and they would be convinced about the consequences of their sins. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world is one of convicting and of convincing people about the nature of their sin and about the effects of their sin. Now the way that the Holy Spirit carries out this ministry is that he exposes the sin of a person and he exposes at a much deeper level the inner workings of the heart of a person. So he convicts by exposing. 
In fact, the very word that's used here that's, con- that's uh, translated convict, in other parts of the New Testament, it's translated expose. Like in Ephesians 5.11, Paul writes this. He's talking to believers like us, and he says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Convict them, convince them, make them known, bring them into the light, see the truth, tell the truth about evil works of darkness. This is the ministry that the Spirit does. He convicts and he convinces by exposing sin and exposing the hearts of sinners. And he does this by using two primary tools, the Word of God and the people of God. So with regard to the word, let me just read for you this familiar word from the author of Hebrews. I think this so well demonstrates what the Spirit does with regard to the world. This is Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. For the word of God is living and active. And the reason it's living and active is because God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, And here's what it does. It does not just live on the surface of things. It does not just say, you did this bad thing. But here's what it does. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Beloved, it goes deep. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The Holy Spirit exposes sin and the heart of sinners by shining the floodlight of God's word upon them and causing the truth to be known. The Holy Spirit says, perhaps that's what you said, this is what you think, this is what you're believing, this is what you have done, but here is what God says, and here is how God thinks, and this is what God has commanded, and this is now what he has to say about what you in fact have done. Thus, the Spirit uses the word to expose sin and sinners, and really automatically, when the exposure happens, Conviction happens, and hopefully, convincing happens as well. Now, with regard to the church, I just want to read for you a few quotes from Paul to Timothy and Titus. He's talking to pastors of churches, but pastors of churches are supposed to equip the saints for the work of ministry, so everything Paul commands them is really for all of us. So just think now about the the Spirit working through the church to do his ministry of convicting as you listen to these words from Paul. Paul first writes to Timothy and says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, here's the charge now, Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, and here's what you should do with the word. Reprove people, rebuke them, exhort them with complete patience and teaching. In other words, let the Spirit flow through you, flow in you, and work through you as you preach the Word of God in the world. The Spirit uses the Word and His people to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then Paul writes to Titus, he, the prospective elder of a church, must hold to the the trustworthy Word as taught so that he may be able to do two things to give instruction in sound doctrine, that is healthy teaching, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And then Paul continues, this testimony is true, therefore rebuke them. He's talking about people in the world. Rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, 
not devoting themselves to myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. And then finally, Paul tells Titus, declare these things. It's a strong word. Declare. Don't just speak. Declare them with authority. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Paul was not exhorting his protégés in the ministry, beloved, to make much of themselves. He was not telling them to act like a CEO or a president of a church and just to think that they were all that and that the people should bow down and worship them and follow them. This is not the model in his mind at all. Paul is simply saying, Timothy and Titus, this will not be fun. You'll probably not want to do it, especially as it begins to happen. It will become more and more challenging. But open yourselves up to the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit that will first work in you and then through you. And fear nobody but God. Fear nobody but God. Reprove and rebuke, not because you are the ultimate authority, but because you are a a vessel of grace and you have been given authority to speak of the grace of Christ in the world. And beloved, as Timothy and Titus preached in their cities, the Holy Spirit convicted the world by the word and through the church, and he does the same exact thing today. Now, I want us to notice something that's very important. Even as Paul was issuing the command to reprove and rebuke the world, he was also holding out hope that some people from the world would hear the word, repent of their sin, turn toward God, and receive eternal life. In other words, there's a sense in which the Holy Spirit is against the world and a sense in which he is for the world. The Spirit is convicting the world in order to save the world. And essentially, his ministry is not one of condemnation, but one of evangelization. Of course, a person, in order to be saved, must come to the realization that their sin is very serious. They must come to see that what they've done before God absolutely matters to God, and they will not get away with it. They must see that their sin is a great offense against their creator and that their creator will hold them accountable. They are condemned before God unless something happens. That is true. But the purpose of the Spirit's desire to expose the reality of our condemnation is that some will hear that message and turn from their sin and believe. The Holy Spirit desires to convict the world in order to win some out of the world from every tribe and tongue and nation in the world. And so Jesus said that he's going to do this ministry of convicting and exposing with regard to three particular things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now these verses are notoriously difficult to understand. Even a leading thinker, a leading light like John Calvin, he wrote a long commentary on the Gospel of John that I've been reading uh, throughout the series. And when he came to this text, John Calvin said, there have been so many different suggestions about what this means that I'm not even gonna bother listing them all because it would take up too much space. And so what I'm gonna do is just tell you what I think the, the Spirit is saying here in this text. And basically he said, I'm giving you my best guess. And that's how I feel this morning as well. I've spent hours and hours poring over this text. I've prayed about it a lot. I do feel like God has given me some discernment, but mainly what I'm trying to do right now is start a conversation with you about what Jesus is saying in verses 9, 10, and 11. It's confusing. And so let me sort of walk you through how I see this, and then hopefully after church and in community groups and families, we can, we can talk about it more later. Jesus first said that the helper will come and convict the world with regard to sin. That's probably the easiest one to understand here. The word for sin that's mostly used in Greek and in Hebrew both means to miss something, and maybe to miss the mark, you've probably heard that before. The, the picture you ought to have in mind is of an archer who is shooting at a target, 
and he shoots and not so much misses to the right or to the left or over or under, but he, he, the arrow falls short completely of the target. He doesn't even make it to the target. He misses the mark by falling short of the target. When this word is applied to human beings with regard to their relationship to God, it refers to any thought, feeling, word, or action that departs from what is right as defined by God. So in other words, it is a violation of the law of God. It is a, a falling short of the will of God. The Apostle Paul probably captured the heart of this word the best in Romans 3.23 where he wrote that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So to fall short of God's glory is to shoot our arrow toward his will or to shoot our arrow toward his glory, but to gravely miss the mark by falling short of the mark. We don't even make it to the target. It's not that we miss right, left, over, or under. We don't even make it to the target. We fall short. Sin, like this, can be committed knowingly or unknowingly. And what I mean by that is if you sin and don't realize you're sinning, you have still sinned and you're still responsible for that sin. Sin can be committed by commission or omission. It can be an overt act that you choose to do, and it can be something that you deliberately choose not to do that you ought to do. And sin, finally, can be either personal or it can be uh, uh, corporate. An individual can sin or a whole group of people can sin up to and including the entirety of humanity. Sin is complex and it is shot through the human being. But whatever the details of particular sins, I think that the nature of sin is singular, it's universal, and frankly, it's very simple. It is a disregarding of the person of God and a disregarding of the will of God. It is ignoring him or intentionally setting God aside to do the things that we want to do in the way that we want to do those things. This is why Paul can write something like this. So, such a radical statement, Romans 14, 23. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. You need to think about that definition. When you're brushing your teeth this morning, were you thinking about God? If you're brushing your teeth without regard to God, you are in sin. When you go to work, are you thinking about God? Is the glory of God in your heart at all? Are you even considering what he thinks and feels about your life and what you could do to exalt his name in the world? If not, you're, you're in sin because you are disregarding God. To, to put it positively, Paul said elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, he said, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Do everything in reference to God. Think about God. Labor for his glory in everything, and in this way, you will complete his righteousness. You will not sin. Faith is the heart of holiness, and a lack of faith is the heart of sin. So, when the helper comes into the world and exposes sin, convicts the world with regard to sin, notice what Jesus said in verse 9. What's the heart of what he's going to expose? That they did not believe in Jesus, and they therefore did not believe in God the Father. All acts of rebellion reduce to this singular fact. It is a failure to believe in God and in his Holy Son. Therefore, the Holy Spirit, as he works in the world, is seeking to exalt Jesus in the eyes of people and thereby expose their rejection of Jesus by the people. And his aim in doing this is to convict all but to save some. In other words, there's a great hopeful tone to this ministry. 
He is seeking to convince some from every tribe, tongue, and nation so that they will turn and believe in him. He works by the word through the church to save some out of the world. Several months before I came to know Jesus Christ, I had a job at a restaurant in Lake Havasu, Arizona. If you've ever been there, you wonder why I go to a God-forsaken place like that, and I'll have to tell you that story another time, but I was there running from the law and running from people and just living a really stupid, self-censored life. And I'm there in this restaurant working, and this other young man who's working beside me starts trying to share the gospel with me, and he, uh, his, his tactics probably left something to be desired. He was forceful, he was even rude at times, and finally at one point, just to get him off my back, I just said to him, listen, you need to leave me alone, I will come around someday. And he just looked me right in the eyes, and he said, well, here's the problem with that, someday might be too late. That's the last thing he ever said to me about God, about Jesus, about really anything. And in some ways, I was really glad about that. I did get him off my back. But you know what? Those words haunted me. I could not stop thinking about what he said because I just knew in my heart that what he said was true. And I felt like the clock was ticking against me. My time was running out. The Holy Spirit used that man to convict me and convince me. And maybe he wasn't rude. Maybe the Lord just knew that I needed somebody to smack me upside the head. Maybe he knew that I was just that stubborn, that that's what it took to get through to me. But whatever the details, I praise God for that man because the Holy Spirit used him to get through to this hard heart. And three months later, somebody asked me to read 1 John. I opened up the Bible. I started reading. By chapter three, I got saved. The Spirit of God used his word and the simple words of his own people to save this soul. He convicted me with regard to sin and specifically around the fact that I did not believe in Jesus and because he did that, I stand before you today. And what I'm telling you is that the convicting ministry of the Spirit is serious, but it is filled with hope for the world, beloved. Second, Jesus said that the helper will convict the world with regard to righteousness. To be righteous is to be relationally right with God, so it's to have, be in a good relationship with him, in a healthy relationship with him, and it is to do what is right in the sight of God as defined by God. So it's to be right with God and to do right in the sight of God. And of course, the problem with this is Romans 3.23. All of us have sinned and we have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us is righteous. As Paul wrote in Romans 3.10, he said, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now that's extreme, and that's true. And because the situation is so drastic, and because human beings were completely incapable of solving this problem on their own, God decided to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, and he sent his only begotten son to do two things. First of all, to live a perfectly righteous life. The meaning of the life of Jesus is that every day of his life, he did only what was right in the sight of God through perfect fellowship with God. From the moment of his birth to the day of his death, he lived a perfectly righteous life before God the Father. And then the other thing he did was he took the consequences of our unrighteousness upon himself. He paid the price for our conviction. 
We're convicted before God because of our unrighteousness. Jesus said, I will pay the penalty that is too great for them to pay. And in this way, Jesus Christ opened up the way to eternal life for everyone who will believe in him. For everyone who believes in him, his righteousness becomes the clothing over their lives. So now the Father does not see their unrighteousness, but Jesus' righteousness. Because on the other hand, Jesus took the penalty for all that they did, and he paid it in full. And the Father has forgotten about it. The Father has removed it as far as the, as the east is from the west. On the basis of these things, on the basis of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into the world to convict the world with regard to righteousness, which means two things. First of all, our lack of righteousness, and second of all, Jesus' perfect righteousness. Our lack of righteousness is proved every moment of every day because we sin constantly. Every time we do something outside of faith, we sin. Every time we disregard God in any way, we sin. Our, the, the enormity of our sin proves our lack of righteousness. And you know what vindicates the righteousness of Jesus? It's the resurrection. It's the ascension and the enthronement of Jesus in heaven. This is why Jesus said in verse 10, that the Spirit would convince the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Here's what he's saying. My welcome return to the presence of the Father proves my righteousness before the Father. And the Holy Spirit is gonna convict the world of this. The Holy Spirit is going to expose to the world that they were right, they were wrong, and I am right. They are unrighteous and I am righteous. The Spirit will reveal these things. And he will do so to convict all and to save some, so that some people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will come to faith and eternal life in Christ. Scott and Kathy had been married for several years. They had a couple of kids. They owned a pool construction business that was super successful in Southern California. They're making money hand over fist, doing very well. Got all the toys, everything that a, a, a nice middle-class American needs to be happy, or so they say. One day, they're interacting with a business associate, and he just asks a simple question, so what do you think about God? And this began a series of conversations, and eventually, this business associate invited them. Uh, he actually invited himself over to their house, because their place was nicer. And he said, would you like to sit down and watch the Billy Graham event with me? It was going to be televised. I think Billy Graham was in L.A. at that time, but it was going to be televised. And by God's grace, they said, sure, come on over, and we'll, we'll watch that with you. And as they sat there and listened to the simple words of a great man of God, they became convinced that they were sinners. They became convinced and convicted that they were not righteous before God and that their sin was incredibly serious before God and that if something was not done, they would be condemned in the sight of God. They were convinced. And they were convinced that Jesus Christ is perfectly righteous before God and that he is the only way to God and that they must receive him if they wanted to be reconciled with God. And they're in their living room, never having been to church in their lives. How they knew to do this, I don't exactly know. But they got down off the couch and literally laid flat on their faces before God and prayed that prayer, that sinner's prayer, and gave their hearts to Jesus that night. They surrendered themselves to the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. The next Sunday... They walked into First Baptist Church of Palm Desert where I had been a member and saved for about three years 
And I got the privilege of, of mentoring Scott for about a year or so and watching him grow tremendously in Christ. And then I met Kim and we married and I moved off and went to college. But this young family has just continued to be fruitful, fruitful, fruitful in the world for the glory of Christ because of this. The Holy Spirit used his word and the words of a simple colleague at work and the words of a great but simple man of God, Billy Graham, to expose their lack of righteousness and Christ's great righteousness and bring them to eternal faith in Christ. The Spirit's work of convicting is very serious, beloved. He will, in a legal sense, convict the world, but it is shot through with hope because there's still time to turn. There's still time to find a remedy for our sin. Third, the, Jesus said that the helper would convict the world with regard to judgment. The word here for judgment means to separate things. And usually the separation happens through a contest or through a trial of some sort so that you're putting something through a test and seeing where things separate. So we're judging by separating. The word later came to be used to talk about the outcome of the separation. So in other words, it came to be used to, to refer to a judgment or a verdict or a ruling or something like that, if you will. So like along with the issue of conviction, he's issuing a conviction, his judgment is essentially his ruling. And the Spirit is going to come now and issue a judgment to the world. He's going to convict them about the judgment that has already been issued to the world. In the Gospel of John, the, the major separation that we see happening from the very first verses is the separation between light and darkness, between life and death. Isn't that right? John said in chapter 1, verse 4, in Jesus is light and the light is the or is life and the life is the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And then John uses this metaphor of light and darkness to talk about the distinction between life and death. And he comes along in chapter three and says, Listen, a judgment has been issued against the world. It's clear, it's profound, it's inescapable. The world has loved the darkness and hated the light. They have loved death and hated life. They have loved themselves and rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. The light of the world exposed the reality of the world and it exposed the judgment that had been issued against the world. However, in chapter 12, as the time of Jesus' suffering was drawing near, he said something really amazing. Two crowds of people, hundreds of people, he lifted up his voice and said, now is the judgment of this world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. In other words, as Jesus marched toward the cross, he prophesied that his death on the cross would not signal the victory of Satan, but it would actually signal the defeat of Satan. The very thing that would cause Satan to think that he had finally overcome God was the thing that caused God to overcome him and to destroy his works. And because that is true now, because the power of Satan has been irreversibly broken, Jesus said that he would send the Spirit to convict the world with regard to judgment because of this. The world is not a bunch of innocent victims of Satan. They too are culpable for their sin, right? We can't just blame everything on Satan. Satan may have influenced me, but I made the choice to rebel against God. I am responsible. I have sinned. I have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. And so Jesus came to destroy the power of this, the ruler of this world so that he can convict people in the world and hold us accountable for our sins. Here's what the author of Hebrews says about that. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, 
so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so now, again, he sends the Spirit, having broken the back of Satan, to issue judgment against the world because we are culpable sinners. We are not simply victims. And in holding this judgment out to the world, the Lord is convicting us. The Lord is holding us guilty, and he's also holding out hope because he's saying that anyone who will hear this word and feel the grief of the reality of this word and hear the hope that is embedded in his words and turn from their sin and believe, those people will have eternal life. If they see that the power of Satan has been broken and that the power of their sin is now conquerable, and if they receive me, they will receive eternal life. A young man named Wesley Altime grew up in Haiti with a father who not only practiced voodoo, but was actually a witch doctor. So these people were all in. And all, all this kid knew was voodoo. It was his entire life from the day that he was born. However, when he was 11 years old, his father died, and the family was kind of thrown in disarray, and after some months of trying to figure out what to do, they decided to send Wesley to, to live with his grandmother. By the grace of God, his grandmother actually knew Jesus and did not practice voodoo. So she began to tell Wesley about Jesus. She began to tell him about the evil of voodoo. She began to explain to him biblically the place of demons and, and Satan and how that all works and what Jesus has done and how God has broken the power of Satan and the power of sin and, and how Jesus has hold, held out hope for everyone who will believe in him. And slowly but surely, this little 11-year-old mind was persuaded until the day when he bowed the knee and gave his life to Jesus Christ. He was convicted, beloved, about the power of Satan and about the broken power of Satan. He was convicted about the reality of his own sin, that judgment had also come upon him. Even though he was just 11, he had done enough that he knew he was guilty before God, and he turned to God. And he said that it was really hard for him to follow God because many people in his life did not want him to be a Christian. And his report is that Satan was just after him, just constantly testing him, constantly challenging him. But Wesley kept his eyes focused on Christ and kept moving along. One day as he was praying and worshiping, he says that the Holy Spirit told him he would become a worship leader. And Wesley said that's the last thing he thought he could do, but lo and behold, he became a worship leader of a church in Haiti, and he started traveling around, not only leading in worship, but also preaching the gospel. And he got to go back to his hometown and talk to his mother about the gospel, and it took her a few months and, and, and really a miraculous set of events that happened, but his mother also ended up bowing the knee to Jesus. And when their family saw what happened to Wesley's mother, uh, Wesley's uncle, his father's brother, who was also a witch doctor, came and heard more details about it, and he also bowed the knee to Jesus. So three significant people from that family saw new life in Christ because they came to understand that the power of Satan was broken and that there was a judgment against them unless they turned to God in Christ. What I hope that we can see is this is how the Holy Spirit works. He uses his word to reveal truth, and he uses his people to speak that truth to other people. And in this way, he convicts people, he convinces people, he exposes people so that some out of every tribe, tongue, and nation will be saved. The convicting ministry of the Spirit is extremely serious, but beloved, it is so hopeful. It is so hopeful. So as we go into the world and proclaim the gospel to the world, it is true that most of the world will hate us. Jesus has been honest with us about this. 
But we go not to be hated. We go to hold out hope, and some people are going to believe. There are more people like this young man, Jesse, that Grant led to Christ. There are people like that in our city that need to hear the gospel from us. So, beloved, let us rejoice in the physical absence of Jesus. Let us rejoice in the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Let us rejoice that the Spirit does his ministry in us and through us in the world. And let us rejoice that his ministry is hopeful and evangelistic. Let's pray now that he will help us in this. Father, I pray that having heard these things today, that you would give us opportunities today to share the gospel with somebody. Lord, the world is filled with people who need to hear the word. And so I pray that we would have eyes to see and a heart to seek after that. I pray, Father, that as we go about our life in the world, we would beg for opportunities from you to share your hope with the world. And if some of them hate us, so be it. But I pray that some will bow the knee. I pray that some will not only be convicted, but also convinced that as their sin is exposed, their hearts would be humbled and that they would come to believe. Please use your word and use your people today to bring some to faith in Jesus Christ. And for what you will do, we give you our thanks. We give you our praise. You have done all things well, Lord Jesus, and we worship your name.